Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is March 28th, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, I'm so tired, I haven't slept a wink. Emergency medicine, sleep, and fatigue. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Justin Morgenstern. He is an emergency physician and creator of one of my favorite FOMED sites called First 10 EM. Welcome back to the SGM, my friend. Always a highlight of the month, talking nerdy with you, Ken. Great to be here. Well, this is an episode on sleep and fatigue due to work, but you're a relatively new parent with a young son, so no stranger to lack of sleep and fatigue. Yeah, I'm willing to admit that I wrote the majority of these notes at around four in the morning. I'm not sure that I can entirely blame it on on my kid, though. My circadian rhythms just don't match up with real modern life. Uh, I think probably like a lot of people shift work or not, I am exhausted all the time. So I'm really excited to see what I can learn today. Well, why don't you start us off with a case and we'll just dive right into this episode. Probably a familiar case to many of us. You arrive at 7 a.m. to relieve your colleague from a night shift. You find her at the desk asleep with her face on the keyboard, patient documentation half finished. As she sits up and tries to wipe the drool out of the keyboard, you ask her how she's been sleeping recently. She confides that she's worried that fatigue might be impacting her care of patients. Newsflash. This may come as a surprise to some listeners, but many emergency physicians suffer from a lack of good sleep and are frequently fatigued. Yeah, I mean, realistically, Ken, this episode may not require a background uh, section. All emergency physicians are intimately aware of the impacts of shift work and the resultant poor sleep. However, as we struggle to cope with our constant exhaustion, we may lose track of the many detrimental effects of poor sleep. Yeah, our sleep schedules impact our overall health. Shift work is associated with increased rates of cancer, cardiovascular disease, and accidents. I imagine many of us know a doctor who has been in the car and nodded off while driving home. However, and maybe sadly, for most clinicians, it isn't really the personal risk that bothers us. The big concern is how fatigue impacts the care that we provide for our patients. Even moderate levels of fatigue can impact performance, similarly to being intoxicated with alcohol. Industrial studies indicate that errors increase by as much as 30 to 50% on night shifts. The evidence is somewhat limited in medicine. We have mostly studied residents and how badly we treat them overall while ignoring the plight of staff physicians. But there are numerous studies tying fatigue to clinical errors, impaired cognition, reduced empathy, and increased interpersonal conflict. Okay, the evidence isn't perfect. But if we were expecting perfect evidence, that would be considered a nirvana fallacy. I think we can all agree, though, that We are tired, and we aren't performing at our best when we're tired. As my friend Jerry Hoffman would say, do we really need a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial to inform us to look both ways before we cross the street? But we do have a paper. So what's the clinical question today? So what is the percentage of time that emergency physicians spend in a fatigued state? And the reference. So this is Fowler et al., 
Objective Assessment of Sleep and Fatigue Risk in Emergency Medicine Physicians. Uh, it's from Academic Emergency Medicine, and I haven't uh, spilled the beans yet, but this is hot off the press, March 2023. Oh, I thought you were going to say it was published in the Journal of Duh, but okay, yes, this is our hot off the press for March. So let's run through the PICO. What was the population? So this is a convenient sample of emergency physicians from a single academic emergency department. And the intervention? Sleep periods were recorded with, and let me try to get this right, actigraphy, using a commercially available device that measures wrist movement. And what did they compare it to? There were no comparisons. And what was the outcome? So the outcome is something called a ready score, fatigue score, and it was measured before and during clinical shifts. This score consists of three factors, sleep quality, sleep duration, and something called sleep efficiency, which is the total time uh, of sleep divided by your total time in bed. Well, you did spill the beans. This is an SGEM hot off the press, and we are pleased to have two of the authors on the show. We have Lauren Fowler, who is a PhD and professor of neuroscience at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, who teaches medical students, hey, don't be afraid of the neuroscience module. And she studies fatigue and strategies to prevent fatigue in physicians and cancer survivors. Welcome to the SGEM, Lauren. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm wondering, what you, what got you so interested in studying fatigue and sleep and these types of things? Well, um, I have always been interested in the brain. I love neuroscience. Um, but after I graduated from college, I taught middle school for two years. And um, when I taught middle school, I noticed that my students were different at different times of day. And um, so when I went to graduate school, I started studying circadian rhythms and how we are different not just in the basic physiological measures like our cortisol levels or body temperature, but also how our cognition and behavior changes. And I was hired as a subject matter expert consultant with the Air Force um, with uh, the Warfighter Fatigue Countermeasure Branch of Air Force Research Laboratories. And during that research, I started looking at not just time of day and how it impacts our cognition, but also how fatigue and lack of sleep impacts our cognition and our perceptions, um, like was mentioned already, empathy, behavior, all these things are influenced by fatigue and circadian rhythms. Oh, so two questions to follow up. Were you like Charlie and Top Gun? Were you like a consultant to the Air Force? I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um, yes, nobody gets that reference anymore because, you know, it's the old school um, Top Gun. But um, yes, I absolutely was like Charlie and Top Gun. I worked with pilots, air battle managers. Um, there were astronauts there. Um, and so this was at Brooks Air Force Base in San Antonio. And yes, I but I wore longer skirts. Did you tell them that they feel the need, the need for sleep? If this weren't being recorded, I would say something <laughs> totally inappropriate. But <laughs> Jeez, I like you already. So um, I, had a f I had a second question and now I've... Oh, yes. Um, so you worked with middle schoolers and now you're working with medical students and physicians. Noticed any difference? Um, yes. Well, um, also in graduate school, I worked with chimpanzees, which was really similar to teaching middle school. Uh, yes, I, I feel like I have moved up the educational ladder. I'm not so sure as I make sort of gestures to you like I'm a monkey. Anyways, uh, so let's get on to our second guest. Um, our other guest is Dr. Emily Hirsch. She is an associate professor of emergency medicine at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Greenville. She also serves as the director for faculty well-being 
in the Department of Emergency Medicine. Welcome to the SGEM, Emily. Hi, thanks so much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we're really glad to have you because I understand you have a personal story of burnout and I've used the SGEM in the past to share my experience and my journey with burnout. I've shared another emergency physician's story of burnout. Do you mind sharing a little bit about your burnout experience with the SGEMers, if you feel comfortable? Sure. Um, it's kind of a long story, so I certainly don't want to tell the whole thing. But I guess the the basic gist of it was that I was happy in emergency medicine for quite a while until I wasn't. And there came to be a point where all of a sudden I found myself snapping at people all the time, crying at least once a week after shift, um, really dreading going to work. And I found that as I sort of required or reduced some of my professional responsibilities, that didn't seem to make it any better. And as I started saying no to some things, that didn't really make it any better. And so I actually finally in 2010 took a a leave of absence for eight months, actually, from my job. And I traveled all over the US and Canada. And it was a wonderful trip. And I realized during that trip that I was not an inherently bitter, unhappy person. And after eight months of traveling, I came back to work and I immediately found myself exactly where I was eight months previously. I was still crying almost every day. I was very unhappy. And so I decided that I really need to change things up. And so I I left the position I was in. I took a community emergency medicine job. And during that two years, I also did a two-year fellowship in integrative medicine because I actually thought it might be an off-ramp for me into something else. And I realized pretty quickly that I am not an integrative medicine doctor. That's not my uh, wheelhouse. But what I really loved about that was they talked a lot about the fact that we as physicians have to live with integrity that which we're asking patients to do. So if we're asking patients to eat right and sleep right and exercise and have social support and have things that are meaningful in their lives, that we have to be willing to do that too, but that we have to create a healthcare system that allows us to do that. And so that really sparked something in me about this idea that really perhaps my burnout was not a problem with me in emergency medicine. Perhaps there was something going on in the system of healthcare that was causing me ultimately to feel burned out. And that what I really wanted was to be a voice for doing something different over time. And so I actually ended up coming back into the uh, academic sphere of emergency medicine, and I started working on physician well-being. And as far as this work, I'll say around that time, I was talking to a buddy of mine who was actually a commercial airline pilot, and he was talking about some of the fatigue work that they do in, in aviation And it occurred to me that they think very deeply about fatigue in aviation, fatigue among their pilots and readiness of their pilots. And it was a very strange moment for me because it occurred to me that we never talk about that in emergency medicine. I mean, never, ever. We just kind of assume that we are ready to go to work every day. And so I wondered what it would be like if we thought deeply and carefully about fatigue in our emergency medicine physicians, the way the aviation industry thought deeply and carefully about fatigue among its pilots. And so that's ultimately how I guess my long winded story of burnout kind of led me to doing this specific work now, but I am really not interested in individual level wellness, meditation, yoga, eating right, 
individual change, although I think that's important, nearly as much as I'm in how do we create a healthcare system that enables its physicians and healthcare workers to take good care of themselves so that they can take excellent care of patients, which is what we all went into medicine to do. That's what we all want to do. Well, thank you. I appreciate you sharing briefly, you know, a little bit of your journey and your experience with burnout and what you've done about it. It sounds like you're similar to what many others have said is fix the system. Yes, of course, support the individual, make sure that they're healthy and heal thyself and, you know, that you're eating well, sleeping well, in you know, socializing, doing all the things to keep you healthy. But we are not yoga penic as physicians. We are not suffering from a severe amount of or a severe lack of yoga. Now, if you like yoga, do yoga. Wonderful. Hey, I support yoga. I'm not doing yoga, but if you like to do yoga, but all the yoga in the world is not going to fix the broken system. And we need to stop focusing on the individual and saying there's something wrong with them and start focusing more on fixing the actual underlying system that is grinding people down and spitting them out as husks of their former self. So thank you. I appreciate you doing that. Um, but we need to talk about your study here. So um, uh, I'll ask either you or Lauren uh, to give your conclusions to the study. Well, I feel as if you've already given away the punchline um, because our conclusion is that emergency phys physicians are fatigued um, and that emergency physicians spend a, um, a higher than would probably be preferred amount of time in a fatigue state while they are on shift. And so specifically what we found is that sleep duration um, is below what's recommended. Emergency physicians aren't getting quite enough sleep. Um, their average is around six and a half hours of sleep when really that should be between seven and nine and that their sleep quality was also deficient. And but the really the, the biggest conclusion was based on the use of actigraphy and this ready watch that we have the participants wear, or it was the ready band at the time. And because it provides us with a risk prediction and basically a cognitive score that tells us that physicians are spending about 50% of their time in a um, quote unquote normal state of um, cognition during their shift schedule, which is great. But that means that about 50% of their time, they aren't at that level. And we found that about 24% of the time, participants were at a reduced state to where it would be considered impaired with about 10% at what would be considered a legally impaired level for cognition if you were looking at driving. Um, so if you equate it to blood alcohol content, and again, it's not like we were assessing blood alcohol content, it's the cognitive state that is comparable to um, what's happening in their fatigue state and alcohol, but um, that the physicians were at the 0.05 blood alcohol content, cognition level, or worse, 24% of the time. So, and if you think about this and about what this means, realistically, we only assess physicians during their shift and then the two hours prior to and the two hours after. So we wanted to encompass kind of like those pre and post shift duties and the drive um, to and from that a quarter of the time, which equated to more than 700 hours, work hours, these physicians we're in a state that would be considered legally impaired by in almost the entire developed world. Wow. Well, maybe, uh, Emily, could you uh, give us the conclusions from the abstract of the paper to summarize that, what Lauren just said? 
The conclusions, actually, we had an error in the abstract. I don't know if you were aware of that. The abstract actually says that in 25% of the time, we were impaired to a blood alcohol level of 0.08, which is not true. Um, so we've submitted an erratum to that. But yes, uh, the truth is that 25% of the time we found that we were impaired to a blood alcohol equivalent of 0.05. And in 10% of the time, we were impaired to a blood alcohol equivalent of 0.08. So that was, uh, that was the main error that we saw in our abstract. So thank you, Emily. It's important to recognize errors and try to correct them as soon as we have them. Nobody expects perfection, and I'm certainly not perfect, and I've made my share of mistakes. And I'm more interested in what we do when we have our mistakes identified. And yeah, just say, hey, there was some errors in the numbers and resubmit them as a update to the abstract. Uh, but I'll go back to you then, Lauren. Lauren, I just need the conclusions. Can you summarize the conclusions from your actual abstract? What did your authors find? Sure. So we found that fatigue is an issue for many emergency physicians, and our study addressed the percentage of time that emergency physicians are in a fatigue state when they're on shift over an extended duration of time. But we need more research to examine system-level interventions for reducing fatigue in emergency physicians. I like that last part. We need to find system level interventions. Okay, I'm going to switch back to Justin here, and we're going to go through a quality checklist for observational studies. Ready to go, Justin? Absolutely. All right. Did the authors address a clearly focused issue? Yes, they did. I'm a little blurry and fatigued. Yeah, but I think they did. All right. So did the authors use an appropriate method to answer their question? I put this one down as unsure. They used this proprietary score, the ready score, to measure fatigue. Now, this score itself has been validated against the gold standard of polysomnography, but the exact clinical impact of the score is somewhat unclear. Was the cohort recruited in an acceptable way? We put down no for this. This is a convenient sample with a relatively low number of volunteers as compared to the total available population. And then question number four is talking about exposure being accurately measured in a, to minimize bias, and this really didn't apply to this study. How about the outcome? Was it accurately measured to minimize bias? So yes, assuming the participants were always wearing the device like instructed. All right, and I have the authors identified all important confounding factors. I put this one down as, as no. I think for basic descriptive stats, I don't think there are any important confounders, but we sleep is pretty complex and we do lack some information in this study like alcohol or caffeine intake, sleep hygiene, the presence of a two-year-old in the house, all of which might have bigger impacts on sleep than say shift work. But these these were emergency physicians, so I assume the caffeine level was always above therapeutic. <laughs> all right. Was the follow-up of subjects complete enough? Yes, it was. How precise are the results or the estimate of risk? We put this one down as unsure. You would need to know the minimal clinical difference measurable on the ready score to assess the reported standard deviations. And we've been talking recently, a study by Dr. Gord Guyette just published a large review of the minimally important, uh, clinically important uh, differences. Uh, did you find a ready score in that list? Well, that publication is like 146 pages long, and I'm only on page three, so I haven't got there yet. All right. Well, we'll take a look at that later. Do you believe the results? I absolutely do. Do you think it can be applied to the local population of emergency absolutely, physicians? Absolutely. Yes, it can. Do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? 
Yeah, I, I don't think there's much doubt the physicians spend some percentage of their shifts in a fatigue state, but there's not all that much published objective data like this. And the 12th question that I didn't put in there was about funding of this study. Perhaps either Emily or Lauren could respond. Was this funded by anything? Was this funded by Big Sleep, Big Mattress, something like that? Um, f- funded by ReadyBand? No. Um, <laughs> we received funding. Um, uh, this was a seed grant through the Prisma Health Sciences Center for collaboration between Clemson University, University of South Carolina School of Medicine, Greenville, and Prisma Health. And were the ready bands provided by the uh, company? Uh, for a fee. Um, so yes. So we we paid um, to use the ready bands and their proprietary algorithm. All right. I think that covers question 12. Let's get on to the results. Of the 131 emergency physicians in the Department of Emergency Medicine, 17 of them volunteered to participate in the study. Nine were female, so that's just over half, and two were full-time nocturnists. They collected data for a total of almost 400 shifts, which worked out to about 23 shifts per participant over a two-month period. Justin, what was their key result? And again, this might surprise you, but emergency physicians were fatigued for almost one quarter of their time on shift. Do you think we should have had some kind of warning to tell people like, if you're driving and listening to this, pull over because this is going to be shocking? Or you work the night shift, pull over, rest, don't get into a car accident. All right. Uh, next thing, the primary outcome. This was that ready score and it was a fatigue score and it assessed sleep quality, sleep duration and efficiency. So let's go through each of those three components of that primary outcome. When it came to sleep quality, what did they find? So it averaged 7.7 out of 10, which the authors tell us is indicative of poor quality sleep. Although if you told me I got a 7.7 out of 10 night's sleep, that sounds like the best night's sleep of my life. Yeah. So on this scale, like the lower number is is a uh, bad sleep and a 10 out of 10 is super sleep. Yeah. Seven out of 10. Am I getting that right or wrong, Emily? You actually have that reversed. Um, uh, a, a score less than six is considered normal. So anything above six is considered an abnormal score. So 7.7 is actually significantly abnormal. So so this is like the pain score. So Justin shouldn't be excited that he got 7.7 out of 10. So it's better to be a one out of 10. You do not want to be a 10 out of 10 when it comes to sleep quality. And if it helps you to think about it this way, um, the sleep quality assessment takes into consideration um, how long it takes you to go to sleep, fragmentation in your sleep, how long you're awake after sleep onset. So the longer you are awake, the more your awakenings, the more things like that. So if you get up to take care of the baby, um, this gives you worse sleep quality, which is a higher number. So 10 is bad is what I'm getting at. 10 is bad. And Lauren, since you got the Top Gun reference, hopefully you'll get this reference. I think my sleep quality, it goes to 11. All right, Justin, how about sleep duration? So the mean number of hours slept per night was 6.7. And sleep efficiency. So the mean was 87 here. And if you remember, that's the percentage of time that you are actually asleep as compared to the time that you are in bed. And they found that participants spent about a quarter of the time on shift with fatigue scores 
indicative of significant impairment? The They were interested in whether uh, fatigue was associated with this shift time. They found that shift time only accounted for about 1% in the variance among ready scores, although they did note a trend towards lower ready scores with shifts that started both earlier and later in the day. The shift type, you know, day, evening, night, was significantly associated with the fatigue score, where night sh- shifts, surprise, surprise, were associated with higher fatigue scores. Okay, that's enough for the results section. Let's get to the talk nerdy because we have two of the authors here and I'm really looking forward to talking nerdy with you. So I'm going to start it off with the first question and either or or both can respond. But the first one is about masking. Participants were masked to their sleep data during one of the two months of the study, but it wasn't clear if they were masked to the hypothesis or intent of the study. So I'm not talking about were they wearing sleep masks. I'm talking about blinding, but I'm trying to get away from using the term blinding and using masking instead for allocation and stuff. And so were the participants, these 17 emergency physicians, did they know you were studying their sleep? They did. And this is, um, we sent an email to recruit participants and through word of mouth and said, do you want to participate in our study where we're looking at your sleep? And so they knew that sleep and fatigue were going to be assessed. They just did not have any way of seeing their own sleep data for the first month. And then the second month, they were able to access an app on their phone where it gave them detailed information, not only about their sleep data from that previous 24-hour period, but the cumulative sleep data from the past month that they couldn't see before. And the reason this is important is because that ready score takes into consideration not just one day's sleep quality and quantity and efficiency, but cumulative sleep debt, which we think is really what might be contributing um, greatly to this uh, these feelings of fatigue and burnout in emergency physicians. Well, I think with the lack of masking, that probably leads into the second nerdy point that Justin wanted to get to. Yeah, so this is the Hawthorne effect. Uh, Obviously, if participants uh, knew they were in a study focused on sleep, uh, that could affect uh, their actual habits. And it's possible that simply being observed might have changed their usual sleep habits. And um, I'll take that one as well. And I think so theoretically with the Hawthorne effect, if you know that you're being observed and you change your behavior because of it, then this is actually an underestimation of physician sleep, right? Because they're like, oh, somebody's paying attention. Maybe I should focus on sleep. We don't think that this is really an issue in part because of that one month where they were blinded or masked to um, their own data, but also because we had many physicians who wore this over longer periods of time. And it was fairly easy to see within physicians their changes across time um, and what happens with their shift. And so, um, and we even did statistical analysis so that you can say, if I'm looking at the data, is it easy to pick, uh, to figure out which physician is which? Because the physicians themselves were very consistent across time. The only difference is if they, so, and I'm going to use Emily's data as an example. So Emily has um, academic and administrative responsibilities that have her data fairly predictable. And then she works a night shift. And then when she works a night shift, she goes from the green area down into the red, and then it takes her about four or five days to recover. And so, but you can see that on a very predictable basis. 
if the Hawthorne effect were true, you would have seen some type of change, at least early on, and we're not seeing that statistically. So do I understand you correctly? Do you have data beyond the two months on participants? Uh, on um, We have a lot of data. And um, so we only analyzed the two months because that's what we had for the 17 participants. But many of the participants really enjoyed getting that feedback and um, wore it for longer periods of time, including Emily, who has now worn hers for about two years. And are you happy, Emily? Uh, do, you, do you find it useful? I find it amazing, actually. I um, And a little scary. I find it amazing how much it really tracks my self-impression of my own wakefulness or fatigue levels. So if I've had a night where I feel like, man, I just did not sleep well, and then I sync my sleep data in the morning, I often find that it really is quite reflective of my own experience of that night of poor sleep. Or if I've had a night where I wake up in the morning, I'm like, yeah, I slept great. Often my ready band will show something very similar to that. So yes, I do find that it generally is quite reflective of my lived experience and it gives hourly predictions of what my fatigue level should be at different times of day based on cumulative sleep and whatnot. And I think that's that's the interesting but frustrating part because it will tell me that I'll hit, you know, a maximum level of fatigue at or I'll start hitting severe fatigue at two in the morning. But if I'm working a night shift, there's nothing I can do about that at two o'clock in the morning. So there are times when I find the data to be pretty frustrating because I actually can't do anything to fix it. But I, I really do find it amazing to kind of watch how the ready band scores work. Well, that gives us a little bit of information on an N of one. And so I'm going to get to question number three, which is about selection bias, because you had an N of 17. There were 17 out of the 131 available physicians who volunteered to participate, which creates a high risk for selection bias. Is there any data on how these participants compare to the individuals who decided not to participate, the other emergency physicians? We do not have any other data on those physicians related to their sleep. And we tried really hard um, to, we were trying to take a snapshot of the current state of fatigue in the department. And we were trying hard not to burden the physicians and create more fatigue by asking them to do more than what they were willing to volunteer. So we'll continue on on the topic of selection bias. And I'll note, Ken, that this doesn't get its own number question. I assume that's because you wanted to jam all the nerdy section into just five questions. That, that was your plan here. You know but, me so well. But uh, the to continue with selection bias, we do note this is from a single academic center, which might make it difficult to extrapolate to other practice environments, places like non-academic urban centers, community EDs, pediatric EDs, rural EDs, critical access hospitals. Wondering if you have any comments on that. Yeah, I, I can take that question. So we are a single academic medical center, or I should say we're an academic department of emergency medicine. But the emergency physicians who participated in this study work in six different emergency departments. So we have one center that's kind of our main urban academic teaching site, and then the other five are all either community or rural sites. And with one exception, only one volunteer in the study, everyone works at a multitude of sites. So it's kind of a hybrid department, but given the word limit restrictions on the manuscript, some of that detail we had to leave out. But not everyone was working at the teaching center all the time. Most of our physicians were working at two or more sites. Oh, that helps a lot, actually, knowing that it was really a multi-site. So it had lots of different um, 
clinical situations where these physicians worked. Um, I'm just going to have one more question under the selection bias, number three here. Uh, we don't know much about those who did decide to participate. Were they known to have good or poor sleep prior to the study? Did they use any pharmacologic or non-pharmacologic sleep aids? How much caffeine did they consume on average? These and other baseline characteristics, I think, would have been helpful for us to understand who are these physicians that volunteered for the study? Well, and we completely agree. And honestly, so many times we've gone back and said how wonderful it would have been to have more data, but we were specifically trying not to burden the physicians who volunteered. And because this was a snapshot of the current state of fatigue, it really was just a basic assessment of objective fatigue over time without anything else considered in there. But simultaneously, we did another um, portion of this because anytime you were trying to look at fatigue risk management, you need to have objective and qualitative assessment. So we do have some qualitative assessment, which we are working on publishing as well, that gives you physicians' own perceptions of their fatigue um, from an individual level and a systemic level and some of the things that they use to mitigate fatigue, which includes things like caffeine usage. It just, we don't have it as a part of this study. Um, and we didn't have anything to completely document and say, you know, did you use 800 milligrams of caffeine today? Um, which it sounds like is a, probably a low estimate for emergency physicians. <laughs> I agree. And I think it's an important question, actually, Dr. Milne, because um, as Lauren alluded to, we were trying really hard not to burden the physicians by asking them a lot of survey questions before they participated. But I do think that whether or not they even self-identified as being poor sleepers or whether they self-identified as being fatigued or whether they were earlier in their career or have been doing this for 20 years, we we really didn't collect any of that data. We just decided to sort of dip our toe in the water and do this single objective measurement and see what what we found. And we were a little surprised by what we found, but it would have been good if we had had some of that data. So thank you for pointing that out. Absolutely. Well, I think it would have been um, a little bit problematic too to use self-identifying how much caffeine do you consume? I don't, well, maybe that's not that much of a difficult question, but how about um, how much alcohol do you consume? We know when we ask patients that there can be a difference with how much people actually volunteer and what medications uh, may you be taking. And then you get into, well, that's just self-reporting. So now do we need a drug and talk screen on every uh, physician? And, and now we're getting into some ethical areas. So I can understand how difficult it would be to get really objective evidence uh, on uh, some of these questions. Yes. And we also did not do objective measurements of fatigue beyond the ready score. So we didn't do pupillary light reflex times and, you know, things like that, that are, have been shown to be really indicative of, of objective fatigue. Um, this was truly just a, a single snapshot in time to see what we found. And that actually leads great into our nerdy question number four, uh, which I titled lack of comparison. And we've already partially addressed this. This question is partially related to my ignorance of this ready score. But in isolation, these sleep scores are sort of difficult to interpret. They're not numbers we encounter every single day. And it's not a, you know, a standard measure that you see in journals all the time. And when I first read it, you know, a result of 7.7 out of 10 sounded pretty good to me. But obviously, we've discussed it's indicative of poor quality sleep. Uh, it sounds like it would be great, it would have been great to have, you know, a comparison group, you know, maybe the same doctors on vacation or, or, or something else to give us a sense of what this number actually means clinically 
technically? What is the impact of this store? Uh, what does it really mean? Well, and I'll take the first part of this and I'll say that it, we do have data from these physicians. And again, these were comparisons against really to, to look at people against themselves. We were looking at physicians across their shifts within physician. And we do have the data where we can go back and look to see what it's like when they're not on shift. Um, we haven't done that yet. And we can also compare them. We've done these analyses with physicians who work at an MD360 clinic, which is they don't have the same type of uh, scheduling and they're also not emergency physicians. They are just working in the urgent care environment. And so, uh, so we can go back and look at that. There are more and more studies using the ready score, especially in healthcare industries. And there are some with nurses as well as with surgeons. A lot of times they're um, using them with residents too, just to kind of track what's happening. So I think it's becoming more popular, but these are widely used in other mission critical industries like transportation and aviation, and really widely used in Australia, which is where Drew Dawson is out of, and he's one of the premier researchers on um, fatigue and errors related to fatigue. But in terms of the clinical aspect, I think Emily is a really good person to talk about that, given that she's worn her ready band for two years. Well, I would have really liked to see this compared to other groups. You know, we work in a team environment. I am repeatedly saying we're all on team patient, but am I more fatigued? Am I more in a sleep deficit? Is my sleep worse than my colleagues that are working as nurses, physician assistants, nurse practitioners? How do I compare to them? And then expanding that as a comparison group. What about other professions? You know, it's often medicine is compared to the aviation industry, but of course you've brought up the military, there's the transportation industry, and there's all these rules and regulations around those industries about fatigue and sleep. And what about just other shift workers? I mean, we're shift workers. How about the security guard that's on with me at night or a factory worker that's working shifts? Or even, I guess Justin even mentioned earlier, what about the physician when they're not, we're not even at work, they're on vacation. I think that would really help put this like, okay, so I'm a seven out of seven or sorry, I'm a, I'm a 7.7 out of 10. What are the nurses running at? What's the PA running at? What's the security guard on that night running at when it comes to sleep? Any um, ideas uh, for a comparison group or looking to uh, look into that further? I think that's a fantastic idea. And I, I think that you have really shown what um, where we plan to go in the future. So we've started looking specifically at physicians. And it's possible, though, that we can expand this to include other teammates um, who are working um, toward patient health in the um, emergency room. So I think it's really important to look at the whole team and not just at the physician. So this is that first step. But absolutely, I think it'd be fantastic to compare a physician to themselves when they're not working. And if you can actually find a time when an emergency physician doesn't have other um, <laughs> off-duty responsibilities. But yes, that, that gives us a direction we can go. Uh, there are other studies, again, looking at um, other healthcare workers. But if I had to predict, I would say that emergency physicians almost certainly have worse sleep, in part because their clinical work intensity. Yeah, I'm just wondering if we're better, worse, or the same. And patients deserve the best care based on the best evidence. But it means that the team members all need to be functioning 
at their peak, right? Like it's a team. And, and if, you know, different members of your team are, you know, impaired because of their fatigue or lack of sleep or poor sleep, it can affect outcome. And, you know, we do have redundancies. We're working with nurses and PAs and NPs and lab techs and x-ray technologists and all this kind of stuff. But boy, where, where do I fit in? Am I better? Am I worse? Or am I about the same as, as the other healthcare professionals I'm working with? I think um, one of the things that we are excited to address is in fatigue risk management systems, they really do address that um, teammate identity rather than the individual. So that um, trying to normalize an individual who is feeling fatigued means that the rest of the team can help help minimize the effects of that fatigue. So like Emily said, if she's working a night shift and at 2 a.m. her ready band goes off and says, hey, you're in a fatigued state, at least now she knows and we're trying to normalize that conversation around fatigue within our own Department of Emergency Medicine to make it so that the team itself can help elevate the care that the patient is receiving and they're not impacted by an individual who is fatigued. You know, again, this was just a real first toe in the water kind of look at what's going on. So yes, absolutely. Other groups need to be assessed as well. For sure. The security guards, the nurses, the techs, everyone else. It would be wonderful if we had that data. As of right now, we really don't. I do think that there's one feature of emergency medicine physicians that is distinctly different than most of those other groups. And that is that those other groups generally are scheduled as day people or swing shift people or night shift people. And so although they are shift workers too, they tend to be on a more stable shift over the long term. Whereas I, I've i noticed since I've been wearing my ready band, I have worked a total of 29, I think it is, different shifts. And so it's, and it's always irregular and changing. There is no pattern to it. So that irregularity and unpredictability of it adds an additional element along with the cognitive load and simple acuity of, you know, what it is that we do all the time. But yes, I agree completely that we probably do need to be measuring all different kinds of groups. All right. And so to round it out with uh, Ken's favorite number, number five, question number five is the ready score and clinically significant numbers. Now we've already sort of been talking about it, but I think this is so important to really understanding this research. I was not familiar with the ready score before this. Um, And we're all familiar with research scores where, you know, you can see pretty big numerical differences that actually don't have an impact on a patient important outcome. They wouldn't be detected by the the patients. So I guess my question uh, is how well does the ready score really correlate with subjective feelings of fatigue or objective function on, on testing? And is there a minimal important difference on this ready score that would actually be noticeable by the practicing physician? So for example, do you think that small variances between the ready scores you saw by different shift times has actually any impact on any real world impact? Yeah, I suppose I can take this as somebody who's been wearing it and sort of understands how the scores work. I will definitely say that there is no real significant difference between, let's say, a 93 and a 92, or a 93 and a 90, or even an 85 and an 83 or something like that. I don't I don't detect differences based on a, a numerical difference of just a few points. Uh, what's interesting about the ready score, I find, is that it will it sort of batches your scores into color categories. So you'll either be green or yellow or orange or red. 
and there are sort of gradations in between. But I can definitely tell a difference between when I am green and when I am yellow and when I am orange and when I am red. That I can definitely tell. And those are 10-point swings. So I can definitely tell a difference when there is uh, like a seven or more point swing. And I'm kind of on the verge of another color category. Those are very palpable. Well, my follow-up question circles back to the background information when Justin was talking about, yeah, we know we're tired. We know we have poor sleep and stuff. And yes, it can affect our own health negatively, but often we put our patient's needs and care above our own. And does this impact our patient with regards to a clinically important medical error? Like, are there bad outcomes? And so does any statistical difference in the ready score? Uh, and we know things like pain scores, you know, you have to have 13 millimeters on a hundred millimeter, you know, uh, visual analog score to be considered statistic or, or clinically significant. Are any of these ready scores going to be translating into, I committed an error and caused badness? There are no studies that document what uh, decrement and a ready score would equate to on a clinical side, but there are um, in transportation um, and in aviation and in mining industries. So fatigue science actually will report a lot of their, uh, a lot of the studies that have been done, not sponsored by them, but just through different countries using their equipment. Um, and so for, um, for driving, they'll, um, they talk about microsleep in uh, transportation, like in truck drivers and things like that, where the ready score itself will make a prediction about what's going to happen. And then they will document how similar this is to the prediction. And it is very, very accurate. So in laboratory studies, they've been able to show you know, things like psychomotor vigilance task, which measures your reaction time um, and your motor coordination. That has been shown to be very, very well predicted by the ready score. But in terms of clinical errors, as far as I know, there's only one study that looked at this and it was looking at, they basically did an observation of physicians and the prescription errors that they were making while they were wearing the ready watch. And um, through observations, um, they were able to document that physicians were making more prescription errors when they were rated as fatigued and they had less sleep, but it was really impacted by the number of interruptions they had. So, um, so this is one of the studies that we cited in our paper, and I think it's West is the author, but um, looking at overall sleep and fatigue and ready scores and how that equates to errors, it's just, it's really unclear right now. What we do know is that there is mixed research on clinical errors as, a relate, as related to fatigue in the physician. And it really depends, like what you said, Ken, on which area are they in and what are their teammates like? There's so many variables that can, can contribute to this. Where this question comes from is if we're going to have a culture change, if we're going to be able to change the system, it may not be enough to say, oh, look, doctors are tired. Doctors aren't sleeping well, but it may have a bit more oomph, a little bit more impact if we can say, hey, this is harming patients. And, and, you know, we're all here on team patients. So we're interested in making sure that our team is well rested and performing at their best so we don't cause patient harm. So it becomes a patient safety issue. And that's where that was coming from. I agree. And I think there are actually many steps to get there because, first of all, you have to show that we're well, demonstrate that perhaps we're fatigued to a certain level. And then are we fatigued to a certain level and therefore starting to make errors? 
And are those clinically significant errors? And so I think this is several steps down the road. There is some literature, and particularly among residents, to show that residents on night shifts make more errors. And, you know, there is some of that information out there. But I I don't know that there is anything yet that shows that this particular ready score correlates with this number of patient, patient significant errors. That information is not out there yet. And that ties right in. I'm going to have to sneak this one in here because Ken gets angry if I go over five questions. But, but I'll tell you, personally, I, I'm very interested in sleep and I've been thinking about buying one of these devices for a long time. But there's one key thing that has stopped me. I don't need a device to tell me when I'm tired. I know when I'm tired. And actually having my watch say, hey, you're tired, would probably just tick me off. What I need is a device to make me less tired. So Emily, you've been wearing this for a while and maybe you can tell us, is there, are there ways that I can actually use this information to make my life better rather than just it tell me something that I already know? That's a great question. Certainly, I think having it show you where you didn't quite get enough sleep and you can think to yourself, you know, maybe if I hadn't surfed the internet for that last hour and had gone to bed an hour earlier, that would help. And I know Lauren has had experience with several other physicians who have self-adjusted their sleep hygiene practices because they have noticed that their scores were poor. But I think what's the real utility of this particular device is that it produces, as Lauren mentioned earlier, an hourly prediction of when your fatigue will be expected to occur. And and that can be viewed on a dashboard by your managers on, on shift or your bosses who do scheduling and that allows decision makers to think carefully about, do we have times of day that we have people who really aren't at their best? Do we need to think differently about how we schedule people? Do we need to think differently about how many resources we need to have at that time because we have people who are not working at their best? What do we do when we have a cadre of people who are simply working fatigued? How might we mitigate that or prevent that from a systems level? And that's really where. I'm ultimately trying to go with this. So I think what's really nice about the ready band is that it sort of allows that system level look at what's going on overall. But I agree with you, Justin, it would be so nice if I had a device that would simply like put me to bed, you know, pat me on the head and give me a glass of warm milk and fold down the sheets for me and say, Hey, Em, time to climb into bed now. You're tired. Soft kitty, tired kitty, <laughs> little ball of fur. Exactly. I can't remember the exact Soft name, kitty, warm kitty. You're warm very kitty, close. That's, yeah, that's right. Good. It's out of well, the 80s, I, so I don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> I have two follow-ups to what she said. Is that okay if I pipe of course. in with those? So the first, she mentioned, um, I we've used the ready bands with uh, some different populations. And I have a friend who's a physician that was not a part of the study who um, decided to get a ready band after we were talking about this and started wearing it. And this person told me there was something wrong with the ready band that that they were, they felt great. They were getting good sleep at the ready band had this person in the red all the time. So they were consistently showing that they were getting poor sleep and they were like, no, I'm great. I, I mean, I, you know, this is anyway. And I said, well, is it possible that you could make some adjustments to your behavior. And they started making some slight adjustments, trying to go to bed earlier. And lo and behold, the ready score went from red to orange to yellow. This person now um, has been wearing it for more than a year and is in the green almost all the time. And their spouse has said, it's like 
a new person. They feel great. I have to admit this person also retired. So, um, but, <laughs> but the, it was funny because when they started, they thought there was something wrong with the device. The other thing is um, I'm using this device in studies with breast cancer patients and um, trying to look at their sleep and just to, to look at what we can do to try to improve sleep in breast cancer patients. And one of the ways they've used this is about half the women who are using this will say, I am so ticked off and they don't use the term ticked off because I know I'm tired. Stop telling me I'm tired. You know, it's like affirming that they're tired. And I said, well, at least now that you have something valid that you can show your physician to, so they don't just think that you're being a whiner about it. But the other thing, about half of them say, well, I saw a pattern and I don't, on Tuesday nights, I was sleeping so much better and I don't know why I was sleeping so much better. And what they would figure out is, oh, they were exercising on Tuesday night, which helped them sleep better. And so once you start to recognize patterns that result in better sleep and less fatigue, it can become very therapeutic. And so I, I think that there are things that can be used, but it is in some ways, it's kind of like, you know, kicking someone when they're down, you have no control over your schedule and you know, your schedule's fatiguing you, but that's where I think we have the opportunity. If you have a chair of the department who is willing to use these data for the greater good, you know, to use their power wisely, I think um, it can be done in a way that is beneficial to everyone. Yeah. Uh, I, I've just got a, um, I'm worried. I'm worried that about a dystopic future where we have this dashboard in the emergency department waiting room and that dashboard shows, you know, length of stay, wait times. And then it has this color coding of your, of your clinical team. And look, they're all in the red, you know, and, and we monitor it and we measure it, but we don't do anything about it. Right. We just say, right. oh, you know, our wait time is four hours. And we, we, we're not doing it. Now we've got a wait time of eight hours. Now we've got a wait time. We, we get posted, oh, it's a 12-hour wait. And what's being done about it? So you're going to post, oh, look, we're in the orange. We're in the red. And still nothing gets done to address the problem. We're just, all we're doing is measuring it and putting it on a dashboard. Woohoo! Oh, I agree. It's terrible. And the scariest thing is to measure this and not do something about it. Yeah, we're measuring offload delays for ambulances, really. And now we're going to we're going to extend we we have these um, you know, tongue-in-cheek things saying we're going to have a fellowship in chair medicine or a fellowship in hallway medicine. Now we're going to have a fellowship in off-ramp, you know, offload medicine where we're going to go and look at all the ambulances and do rounds in the back of the trucks while they're sitting there idling waiting to offload. No, we need to fix the problem. But I will say this, you know, for a long time I think we felt like we were screaming into the void about this. You know, we were all saying our schedules weren't working for us. We were exhausted. We were fatigued. This was terrible. And there was no data. And in fact, part of the reason we did this is because I was talking to my department chair about creating a fatigue risk management system. And he said, well, that sounds interesting and all, but I need to know if this is even a problem. And I responded, well, there's lots of data in lots of industries that do shift work that would say that's a problem. And he said, well, okay, but there's nothing in emergency medicine that says this is a problem. So show me if this is a problem in emergency medicine, which is, led, which is what led directly to this line of questioning. And it looks like perhaps this is really a problem. <laughs> so, how, how long it had been since that male physician had done any shift work is my question. He still works shifts. He still works oh, okay. shifts. And he's right. actually been very supportive of us. He just wanted some data. So no, I appreciate now this that. is our, our first foray into collecting data. And 
he sees this as a real call to action. And, you know, if, if this study is in any way accurate, and we sincerely would love it to be replicated by another group, and hopefully it is, but then it means patients are kind of playing Russian roulette when they come to the emergency department. If, you know, one out of every four emergency visits, they're getting a significantly impaired physician, or certainly one out of every 10 emergency visits, they're getting an impaired physician. This would really be a real call to action for real change. Although I agree that chair and hallway medicine should be a call to change also, and 12-hour wait should be a call to change also. And I agree these are large mountains to try to move. But I again, and, and I think it's really important to say that when you have people who are in charge of the department who are willing to accept that changes need to be made and they just need some direction, that's we provided the evidence and he has been very, very helpful. Um, and so we've applied for a grant through NIOSH to try to um, increase the size of the study where we would do things like look at the impact of the specific shift that the people are on, have greater numbers of physicians involved, um, collect all these other data. So we're waiting to hear back from that um, the funding for that. But we would love for people to replicate this at other sites to see if how we compare. Is there something that we're doing that's better or worse? And if there are ways to decrease the impairment, what can we do? Well, I'm inspired and energized that you have a leader in your department willing to take this on because it is a, it's a, it's a real problem. Anything else that you'd like to say about your study or your future research endeavors before we move on? I just want to reiterate what Emily said. This is a first step and we're really working to build a fatigue risk management system for this department of emergency medicine, but something that can be replicated other places. It's widely used in other industries, and it's just shocking that it's not used in medicine in general. You know, you, we've all had that experience where you are at the airport and there's a flight delay, but then your, your flight crew is not allowed to fly because they've gone over their number of hours that they're allowed to work. You know, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen in medicine. You can't do that. So what are these strategies? We need to start working together to develop strategies. And the first step is identifying and quantifying the problem instead of just bitching about it. I can tell you that the uh, strategy that I've observed recently is that we're short-staffed regularly. And because we're short-staffed regularly, and it's usually on the nursing side of things, we're short-staffed, that the rest of the nurses will just have to work harder and not take breaks. That's, that's the answer. And when they do it, they sh you show that, oh, you can do this, and then they keep doing it, which builds your cumulative fatigue, which makes it almost impossible to be successful. And it leads to what Emily was talking about with burnout. And we have to be our own first patient, right? You, you have to, to make sure you're taking care of yourself. Wow, that was a lot of nerdiness. Thanks. Let's uh, move on to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. Uh, yeah, we clearly agree with the author's conclusions. We could make a friendly minor amendment to, to modify that last sentence to more research is needed to examine system level interventions for reducing fatigue in emergency physician. And if that reduction would actually result in an important benefit to either physicians or patients. And how about an SGEM bottom line? Uh, fatigue is an issue for many emergency physicians, and perhaps an issue many of us still need to take more seriously for our own sakes and for the sakes of our patients. And can you resolve the case that you presented at handover? 
So you listen compassionately to your colleague, but realize that 7 a.m. after a night shift is not a great time for further discussion of fatigue. And so you take handover as quickly as possible and get her home to get some rest. However, you do set up uh, departmental rounds to discuss strategies to improve sleep quality and manage the difficulties of shift work. Well, Justin, I know that you have a great first 10 EM blog on some of this stuff called Some Evidence for Working Night Shifts. It covers a paper by Wallace and Harbour on the top 10 evidence-based countermeasures for night shift workers. So I'll put a link in the show notes for the SGMers to check out. How about a clinical application of this study? Yeah, so part of being an emergency clinician is acknowledging the impact that fatigue has on our performance and consciously working to minimize that risk. Yeah, and that might be uh, working individually on managing uh, the risk for ourselves, right, to our own, but also advocating for system changes. So what are you going to tell that colleague at 7 a.m.? I've always debated this, but I'm honestly not sure if patients really want to know exactly how bad my brain is working at 4 a.m. For now, I don't tell them, but luckily for this podcast, I don't have a patient, so I can leave that tricky discussion for another time. Time for the Keener Contest, and last week's winner was Dr. Bernardo Pimentel. He is an internal medicine resident from Portugal, currently doing a fellowship here at Western University in London, Ontario, Canada. He knew the average propagation of speed of ultrasound through soft tissue in the body is approximately 1,540 meters per second. Justin, what's the question this week? Well, let me put out a little warning. We should not be celebrating this at all. But our question this week is, what is the longest length of time a human being has remained awake according to the most official records that we have? Yeah, we're not trying uh, to encourage anybody to try to break that record. So if you know the longest time a human being has remained awake, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. And I've just ordered a bunch of new types of cool skeptical prizes. So if you've won before, you could win a new skeptical prize. But to find out what the prize is, you have to play to win and you have to win to receive that cool skeptical prize. Sounds great. I'm entering again. Again, I guess I already know this answer though. I'll, I'll hold off. Uh, I should give everybody a reminder. This is an SGM hot off the press episode. That means it's your turn to get involved. I know emergency physicians. I know you have opinions. Get, get in touch. Let us know what they are. You can get right onto the SGM blog and ask us questions or leave comments and, and our t- uh, team of researchers will answer those. You can also get us on Twitter using that hashtag SGMHOP. We want to hear your questions. We want to hear your feedback. Uh, thank you, Justin, for doing enough, another SGM on off the press. I know you're tired. I know you're fatigued, but I think that this episode could possibly improve the quality of life of many emergency physicians, but also the care of their patients. So thanks for doing this. Hey, the only thing that's better than coffee is chatting with you, getting a little <laughs> nerdy with some stats, man. Oh, stop. All right. Well, thanks, Lauren. It was uh, wonderful to meet you, and I'm really encouraged by your area of research. Thank you so much for having me. And Emily, thank you so much for joining us as well. Oh, my gosh. Thanks so much. This was really fun. So now I'll just ask the authors here to to tag team and give the SGEM tagline. Now, I know you're both in the Carolinas currently, but I think you're originally from Texas. So could you give the tagline in your best Texan drawl? Y'all, remember to be skeptical of anything you learn. Even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. 
Y'all come back now, you hear? So...